have everybody here. Uh, my name's Todd. I don't know if I've met all of you, but if I haven't, hi. Good to have you here this morning. Um, we've been in the book of 2 Corinthians, so if you've, uh, if you've got your Bibles, grab your Bibles, open them up. If you don't have Bibles, there's some guys that'll come down the center, and they'll be having some Bibles. If you need one, just raise your hand, and they'll come over to you, and, and we'll try to get you one so that you can have one. Uh, if you don't have one, please feel free to keep it. Um, we, don't, we don't need it back. We would really love for you to have it as a, as a gift. And so here's where we're going this morning. Last week, we talked about this idea of surrender. But the question I kind of didn't really answer in a lot of ways that we're going to try to answer more of is surrender to what? That's the question we're going to have to answer today. And, and one of the things that I think that I would really love to try to pull out of this text, because this is what I think Paul's saying today, is surrender to being actually real. Now that question can be scary for some, but it's also kind of exciting on another level, because in a weird way, everybody wants to be real, but it, we don't kind of know how. In fact, I think if you ask the question around a group of people, like if you just suddenly landed a bomb into your friends and you ask the question, what does it mean to be real? I think you'd be shocked by the answers. I think everybody would have one in some ways. The, the ones that would probably have it the most are the, things, the, the ones that think they're the most real, which they probably aren't. But this is a question that we ponder through all the time. It's a question even like that I think people oftentimes ask is, what does it mean to be a real Christian? And I'm going to pick on two well-known people, and then we'll kind of get personal to us. But uh, when President Obama was, was uh, in office... I remember I was sitting around with a group of people and suddenly somebody said, I don't even know if President Obama is a Christian. Holy cow, I didn't realize what a can of worms that was gonna open when this person asked it. But suddenly we had this massive debate around the table. Finally, this one lady stands up and I mean, you could just tell her ears were red. She had her hair pulled back. I still remember her red ears. And she put her hands on the table and she looked at everybody and she said, listen, if he says he's a Christian, then he's a Christian. End of story. Who are you to question another person's faith? I don't know if you've ever been in, in, in discussions like that where there's kind of those nuclear bomb kind of conversation enders. But I left there kind of going, well, I think what she was saying, if we confess or we profess we have faith, then we must possess faith. In other words, if I say I have it, then I have it. Now, we could have picked on Donald Trump if there's any self-righteous Republicans here. If you don't remember right, there was a bunch of us that were asking the question, this guy's claiming to be a believer, and just because somebody says there's something doesn't necessarily mean that they are. Now, I think what this gets at, and at the core of what we're going to try to go after, is that I think everybody wants to be real. I think if I were to throw it out there, is, do you like a fake? Everybody would say, no, I don't like a fake. We don't like fake $100 bills. We don't like when we've been hurt by someone that we love because we found out that they're a fraud. Everybody is kind of asking this question, but the interesting thing that I've found is oftentimes we don't even go ask God, God, what do you mean by real? We instead tend to come up with our own understanding of it, and this is what tends to cause all of the confusion. Now, I think this question is super important. I'm just going to try to lay this out so that we get it. 
I think that one of the major reasons that people are leaving the church at astronomical rates is because they've come in, and especially younger generations, and they've been looking for something that's real, and when they come into the church, what they've found oftentimes is a fraud. They found a bunch of people that act like they're Christians, but what they end up running into is something different. Now, I get it. Some of it's a myth. It's a canard. It's something that they throw out there, but I think they've actually got something there. But if there's any place that should be real because we understand who Jesus Christ is, it should be the church. If there's any place that can be authentic because one of the things that we acknowledged when all of us came to know Jesus is that we are a mess. And anyone that doesn't think they're a mess may not understand what it means to follow Jesus. At the core reality of following Jesus is the acknowledgement we are a mess apart from the work of Jesus Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And I'm so thankful in the text that we're going to look at today. If you remember right, a few weeks ago when I started this series, I kept saying over and over again, they were us and we are them. The exact things that were going on in Corinth at this particular time, including this discussion of what it means to be real, we're going to find in this particular text that we're going to look at today. And so if you've got your Bibles, look down with me. Inside of 2 Corinthians, we're going to be in chapter 3, and we're going to look at verse 1 through 3. That's where we're going to be. Let me just read it for us, and then we're going to get going. Paul wrote, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, are we beginning to commend ourselves again? Or do we need, as some do, letters of recommendation to you or from you? You yourselves are our letter of recommendation written on our hearts to be known and read by all, And you show that you're a letter from Christ delivered by us, written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. Now, where do I get this idea of being real? And I want you to look at verse one, because we really need to unpack this idea of what was Paul saying. And he's going to throw two questions at us in verse one to kind of let us know that he's answering the question of what is real. The first question, he says, are we beginning to commend ourselves again? In other words, Paul saying, am I just claiming that I'm real? Am I the real deal? Or he says, look at this, do we need as some do letters of recommendation to you or from you? So he's answering this question. Is it sufficient for me to say that I'm real? Or even is it sufficient for others to say that I'm real? Now, at this particular time, letters of recommendation were just a way that somebody could lend validity. They could lend, they could lend just reality to who this person was, and so somebody would carry their letter of intent, and they would go to town to town, and they would present this letter, and it was this way of being accepted in. I write letters of recommendation all the time for college students, right? It's my way of validating that you can trust them, and they're a person in my church, so you can trust them. That's what we do. That's kind of a letter of recommendation. Paul would oftentimes write letters of recommendation. In 1 Corinthians, we find out that he writes a letter of recommendation for Timothy. We find out in 2 Corinthians that he writes a letter of recommendation for Titus. We even find out that he wrote a letter for Phoebe in Romans 16, and then for Timothy and Epaphroditus in Philippians 2. Even the entire letter of Philemon is really a letter of recommendation. So letters of recommendation aren't necessarily a bad thing. But... How many of you have written a letter of recommendation that when you got done, you realized, I really exaggerated? I mean, not me, but like you, right? (laughs) The problem with letters of recommendation is, is not only can we exaggerate them, but we can outright lie about who that person is. 
Now, here's what he's really getting at, and I want you to grasp this. To be a real person is not to say that we're real, or even inside of this, for somebody else to say that I'm real, but actually we're asking a bigger question, what does God say about being real? Because see, at the end of the day, me standing in front of you, you now I've got close friends that I'm integrated into, and I think they know most of what's going on in my life, especially, I don't know if you caught the curly-headed, strawberry blonde that was just drop-dead gorgeous. Oh my gosh. My wife, I married up. Living in relationship really does reveal who we are, doesn't it? Now, one of the things that I've found about real people, when we ask the question about what does it mean to be real, is that real people believe saying or being called real is not enough. If you're somebody that's sitting there thinking that somehow you are real because you say that you're real, or that somebody says that you're real, you know that at the end of the day, there's kind of a facade in all of that. What he's trying to help them to get is is that there's another way to gain this idea of being real. We don't have to say that we're real. We don't have to for others to say that we're real. In fact, what he's going to get to in verse 2, the way that we really know that we are real is when we see that we're real. Now, this becomes so important when we talk about this idea of being real because after a while, I think we can actually begin to think that we're real because others think we're real or because even we think that we're real. But the problem underneath that, and here's the the kind of the thing that Paul's going to go after, is that we can not only lie to ourselves, but people can even see us in a light, especially if they catch us at the right time and portray us as someone that we're not. So in other words, yesterday I had two events. One event was with me and my son, and I'm sitting down and I'm talking to him gently and we're talking through life and I'm walking him through the dynamics of being bullied by a couple of kids over at Skate Lab. If you would have caught me in that moment, you would have thought, oh my gosh, I'm filling in Todd for dad of the year. 30 minutes later, I was not the same dude. If you would have saw me then, you would have called child family services maybe, right? I mean, it's just like, gosh. And I don't, I, 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 shouldn't have, I shouldn't tease about that. But there's just this reality that sometimes a snapshot of who we are or who I say I am or how others perceive me can cause me actually to lie about myself. So what does Paul say is the answer? In verse 2, he's going to say, you yourselves, look at this, are our letter of recommendation written on our hearts to be known and read by all. Now, in Paul's next sentence, what he's going to do with this, and it's just loaded with meaning when he says, you yourselves are our letter of recommendation. In essence, he was saying that authenticity is not about a letter. It's not what others say I am. It's not even what I say I am, but being real happens through sharing intimate life with other people. Let me, let me explain this so you can kind of capture this. The words are hearts, if you kind of catch it there, speaking of Paul, but it's also probably speaking of Timothy and of Titus. And the things that he says about them is that you all are written, I love this term, on our hearts. 
In ancient thought, one of the things that was key about the heart was it was this place that was the most core part of who I am, the most mysterious part of my being, but it was also the place that dictated out of my inner life all the decisions I made, and in fact, you'll see all throughout the Bible that not only is God after my mind, what we learned a couple weeks ago, but God is after my what? My, my heart. It's the place in which the spirit works inside of a person. And at the epicenter of Paul, I love this, and this is important, God cemented the Corinthians inside of Paul in the depths of his heart after they were captured by Jesus. He had tied them together inside of a relationship. And in fact, it's used in what's called the perfect tense, which means he cemented them and he keeps cementing them in there. And in fact, that word that's used there for written actually means engraved. In other words, God engraved on Paul's heart his love for them which means this letter was better than something I could carry around in a backpack this letter had a, a character to it that it couldn't be forgotten because it was etched on my heart it couldn't be lost because it was carried inside of me and he wasn't talking about warm fuzzy feelings see the thing that Paul kept characterizing himself is is not by what you can say but what you can see he said you saw that I loved you and I sacrificed I worked so that I wasn't a burden on you I came into your life and I walked you through all kinds of various realities I knew that some of you have battled with sin all of your life and I was there loving you in fact he says later on in 2nd Corinthians and even 1st Corinthians I just had anxiety for you it made it obvious that he was kind of a father in the faith, 1 Corinthians 7, and he treated them like his children. He didn't say that he loved them. Others didn't say that Paul loved them. They could see that he loved them. To be real has a unique character to it. It's not about what we say. It's what we see. That's what he meant by being written on my heart. He said not only that, but think about it. He says, you're this letter and I've carried it around, written on our hearts, look at this, so that it can be known and read by everybody. That word that's used there, that word letter, is not like a private letter, it's an epistle. It's something that can be read. In other words, Paul says, everywhere I go, there's always evidence of what God used me to do in your life. I'm not just claiming to be apostle, I'm not just claiming to be something, I have actually dove in there, and I'm not just saying it, you saw it, and others now see the evidence of what God did there. Now here's the thing we need to understand. If you are ever going to be real, and this is one of the scariest things that I'm about ready to say and everything that I'm gonna talk about, real people are forged from intimate, sacrificial relationships. Now think about this, why do we avoid them? I think we avoid intimate relationships for a lot of reasons. One is, is that we don't wanna get exposed. I think we spend almost all of our lives in different ways with one group of people we're one way, with another group of people we're another way, and then you put me over to this group in another way. And what's crazy is, is I forget all the worlds that I've lived in, and it's so tiring trying to pretend to be somebody in all these different worlds that I live in. And in the midst of it, we just kind of want out. We want to get out of this facade. But then what we tend to do then is to isolate ourselves and go back internal instead of Paul laying out this reality if you really want to be real. Now just listen to me because this is so important. If you really want to be real, you will never be that apart from deep 
and intimate relationships with other people. Never. And everything in who we are as Christians, we're just like Adam and Eve. We like to pretend and blame and hide. And God says, you will never be real apart from that. We're afraid to be honest about who we are. In fact, I've met so many different people that throughout life, they've hidden so many things, even from their kids. And and I just had an illustration in my own life in which part of my family revealed after a ton of years that they weren't who they said they were because they didn't in this one weird way want in any way for us as kids to look on them wrongly. We hide, we cajole, we pretend, and then in a weird way we isolate. You're seeing this over and over within our culture. One of the places that we go isolate ourselves is online. You ever notice that? We go on there and we find somebody that we want to be, and so then we portray ourselves as something that we're not. It's called Facebook. True? Seriously, when's the last time somebody put on there like a picture of them screaming at their kids? We always put them on, it's like, hey, Disneyland, I'm the best parent. Hey, look at us, you know, we're doing this. Hey, right? And all the while, in a very vicious and wicked way, we've learned new ways to isolate ourselves, to hide and to pretend. And Paul says, you know, that's not the case. In fact, all throughout 2 Corinthians, he said, you were with me, you saw my life, and I was with you. In fact, the more that we go online, and the more we begin to hide from relationships, the more actually we become a fraud. Now Paul's going to keep going here because he wants him to get a little bit more. And I'm going I'm to unpack these things a little bit further as we move along. Now wondering inside of his head if they were going to think then that somehow he wrote the letter or that they wrote the letter, he says something so powerful. He says, and you show that you're a letter from Christ, and I love this, delivered by us. That word delivery actually just means ministered. It doesn't even mean delivery. So let me just say this again. And you show that you're a letter from Christ ministered by us. In other words, you all are the letter you are because Christ wrote you. He said, when I came amongst you, 1 Corinthians 2, I decided to know nothing amongst you but Jesus Christ and him crucified. I just came amongst you and I just talked about Jesus and reasoned about Jesus and wrestled with Jesus with you. And then he says, what starts to happen is is then you begin to become this letter from Jesus. You all begin to take on the very character of the one who wrote the letter. That word show there, it comes from this Greek word which means manifest, which all the way through 2 Corinthians, Paul is gonna talk about it in which he's trying to help us to understand that when Christ does a work in us, the letter that he writes is of his very own character. That means all of these people that used to be liars and thieves and adulterers and all those other things, Paul said, you know this, Jesus came into your life and he radically changed you. When I look around at a room like this, because I know most of you, I see a gigantic letter of the powerful work of Jesus. Gosh, All of your stories are amazing. Paul says, I might be the in-between, but it's Christ who wrote the letter. And then he says this. Let me just say this. What does it mean to be real? Real people have made Christ the center of their relationships. And again, I'm going to come back to that. But then he says this. It's not something that's written with ink, he says, 
but with the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. Now, just follow me through this because you got to capture this. He could have gone anywhere to kind of explain what he meant by this, but he went back and he captured the law from the Old Testament. Paul would always do this. He would have a thought that he was wrestling through and he would find an Old Testament illustration to kind of begin to understand this. And what he's gonna do now is he's gonna lay out the reality of the Old Testament from the law. Now, he doesn't go to Exodus and he doesn't go to Deuteronomy. In fact, he goes to two other books. He goes to Ezekiel and he goes to Jeremiah. Now, in Ezekiel, what he meant by this idea of now these ones that have it inscribed in our heart is that in Ezekiel 11, God had told him this, I will give them one heart and a new spirit I will put within them. I will, look at this, remove the heart of stone from their flesh, and I'm going to give them a heart of flesh that they may now, look at this, I love this, they may walk in my statutes and keep my rules and obey them. Verse 20 let me just rephrase it, so that they might be real how I mean reality. And they shall be my people, and I'll be their God. Now, you could have left that back here just a little bit and said, oh, that's them, but watch, he's going to make it more personal. In verse 26 in chapter 36, he says, I will give, and we're going to have to go southern here, y'all. I will give y'all a new heart and a new spirit I'll put within y'all. Now, why is he using y'all language? because you will never become real outside of relationship. I'm not gonna just do it in you. Yes, he does do it in us and gives us a new heart, but the idea is giving a heart to y'all. Look at this, and I will remove the heart of stone from y'all's flesh, and I will give y'all a heart of flesh. I'm gonna do something powerful in you. Jeremiah, which was written about 600 BC or so, also was dealing with this. They had just, it was just after the time of Josiah, they had recommitted their lives to Christ, they'd recommitted themselves to the law, and only to find out that they failed again. And in the midst of their failure, God says to them, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of Egypt, but my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord, for this is the covenant I will make now in these new days of Israel, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts. Again, let me rephrase that in terms of Ezekiel. I will make them real and I will be their God and they shall be my people. I wish I had all kinds of time to unpack that, but in verse 34, he, he even says there's a unique way in which we're gonna know him. We won't have to teach in the same way anymore. His neighbor, his brother saying, know the Lord for they shall know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, and I'll forgive their iniquity and I'll remember their sin no more. He's just saying there's something coming that's gonna be so much greater than a letter of recommendation, even better than the law, because the law could only affect us externally, but now more powerfully, there's gonna come a time when people are actually going to be real. Now let me pull us into this. That time is now. All of you in this room, whether you know it or not, are living at the second best time in all of history. The best time is after Jesus comes back. You are living at the time in which those of us who have come to know Jesus Christ and we've been cleansed of our sins, we now have a home made because we've been cleansed of our sins for God to actually live in us and amongst us. 
And in fact, when Peter wrote about this, he says, look, there's a time, he said, concerning this salvation, which the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you and the things that have been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Look at this. Things into which angels long to look. Did you know all of history was coming to this point and every prophet wished they could be alive right now? Right now at a time that when we confess our sins and we repent and turn and go the other way and we receive forgiveness from Jesus, now all of a sudden we can have our lives radically transformed. We're alive at the second best time in all of history. But the problem is I don't think we believe it. Now, let me give you an illustration. Yeah, you like my new car? I just took a picture. Does anybody know what car this is? Anybody? A fancy one? <laughs> Good answer. It's fancy. It's a Hennessy Venom GT. It's the fastest street legal car made. And you can get one today with, for just $1.2 million. Now let's just imagine, because I don't have $1.2 million, that I got this car. Not only that, but after getting it, I told you on the phone, great news, I'm coming to pick you up and you're gonna take a a ride in my new Hennessy Venom GT. I get over to your house and you're like, no way. You climb in the driver's seat and I said, not only that, but we have an entire track to try this thing out. After getting over your fear of the fact that I'm driving, you're like, let's go. <laughs> we get over to the track, man, and you know how those cars sound, gurgle, gurgle, rub, 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 rub. you know, just that sound, right? And we're sitting there on the track, and I put it into first gear, and I just peel out, and we're going like 4,000 RPMs, and we're just going. <laughs> what are you thinking? Shift! <laughs> <laughs> Part of you is like, push the clutch in, I'll do it for you, right? I mean, it's just, gosh. Now, there's a reason I give this illustration. I think we've been invited into the greatest thing in the world, which is better than a Hennessy Venom GT. But we're Christians driving in first gear. God didn't design us to drive in first gear except to peel out at the very beginning. He designed us to find second gear and third gear and fourth gear and fifth gear. And I don't know, this one's probably got like 12 gears. You know, that's how cool of a car it is. He's designed us to operate at a level that I don't think we as believers understand. And this is what Paul's saying. He said, do you understand what you're a part of? You're a part of the greatest thing ever, the gospel of Jesus Christ. And though it feels heavy and we battle with sin every day, we are now partakers, Second Peter, of the divine nature, which means we can become the people that God always intended us to be. We can actually become the real that God intended. 
In fact, the whole goal of the church, I believe in every epistle that Paul wrote, is everything about learning this amazing hot rod that we really are. We are a high performance group of people that are indwelt by the power of the Spirit of God, that same Spirit that rose Jesus Christ from the dead, and now the fun of what it means to be a believer, and not always fun, but as we deal with sin, and we begin to surrender, and we begin to then put ourselves into into groups of people, we can actually become the real that God intended. That's powerful. In fact, the rest of the way from 2 Corinthians 3 all the way to 6.3, this is what Paul's going to unpack for us. He's going to let us know, do you get who you are? He's going to call us these ones that don't want to be found without a body. He's going to call us cracked pots. He's going to call us all kinds of things, but in saying it, he's saying... Do you understand who you are? You're a Christ one. And it's time to get out of first gear. So what do we do with this? Let me give you some just practical take-homes, and if you're going to take a picture, wait till number whatever the last one is. Here's the first one if you want to become real. You will never become real until you know the real one, Jesus. I don't know where all of you are at in this room. I don't have a clue. But I think all of you in here, even those of you that don't know Jesus, you know in the back of your head, you want nothing more than to be real. You know there's all kinds of things in your life that you don't know what to do with. You've been hiding. You've been pretending. And I'm here to tell you the greatest news ever is that the God of the universe already knows you. And so therefore, you don't have to tell him something he doesn't already know. But you will never, ever become real until you first of all know the real one, Jesus Christ. He said, I'm the way, I'm the truth, I'm the life. No one comes to the Father. No one becomes real. No one finds life and life like he never imagined apart from Jesus Christ, no one. I have to put my faith in his finished work and what he's accomplished on the cross and in the tomb. That is what he's calling us to, is to come to him and to go back to last week to surrender at that particular point. Now, if you've come to know Jesus Christ, here's the next thing that we have to surrender. Be careful believing your press. I remember one time the pastor that I was serving under, I just preached a message and I thought that I just knocked that sucker out of the park. I was walking around in my papal robe, which really wasn't, but you know what I mean. I'm just walking around thinking I'm all that. And we, I sat down at his, across from his desk and he looked at me and he goes, Todd, one of the biggest things I've learned is not to believe your press. Because no matter what, you ain't that good and no matter what, you probably ain't that bad. He said, instead, what you or others say about you doesn't matter. What matters is what God says about you. He just began to unload on me who Jesus is. And what I mean by that is that some of you think that you're trying to portray that you're better than who you are. You're not. Again, the beauty of knowing Jesus is we don't have to claim that anymore. But let me speak to another group of you that I'm very fearful of because some of you in here are worse. You think you're worse than you actually are. Even as somebody in here that thinks, I can't come to know Jesus, you don't understand what I've done, I'm here to tell you, God already knows it, and he's forgiven sins of people that are far worse than you are. Even the thing that I hate within the church, and I mean it, I hate when people say, I'm just a worm. 
That is a lie from the pit of hell. You are not a worm. You are a son and daughter of the king of the universe. We love to preach that because we're trying to make you feel bad. We don't have to make you feel bad with false theology. We can bring to you the truth. The truth is, if you know Jesus Christ and you're sitting here today, you are a child of the king. And to call yourself a worm is to tell God, God, you are insufficient. And that is the worst thing you can tell God. Don't believe your press. Here's the next one. You're not a bumblebee or a worm. Choose deep, meaningful relationships. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, there's two types of insects, and I didn't know you'd know this because I didn't know it. A bumblebee is a social insect, and a worm is a solitary insect. Did you know that? Who knew that? You need to read more. Good job. All right, here we go. Now, a bumblebee is that one that goes flower to flower to flower to flower to flower, pollinating as he goes. And by the way, let me just confess to you, that's me. We never really get involved in anything. We just keep going flower to flower to flower, and in a weird way, nobody ever really knows us. We can start to pretend. We can start to be somebody that we're not. I say this because in my own life, I've noticed myself as a bumblebee, and I don't even mean to, but after I've gone from person to person to person to person, all these different things, because that's what good pastors are supposed to do, and we bumblebee around pollinating the masses with our, masses with our goodness, all of a sudden we can realize if we're not careful that I'm a fraud. Then what frauds do is they become worms, not like I was talking about. I just violated my own thought there. We become solitary. We hide. If you're somebody in here today that's a bumblebee and doesn't have tight-knit relationships, then one of the things you need to do is you need to make a decision and surrender today and say, I'm going to get myself into deep, intimate relationships because you will never be real until you do that. For those of you that are kind of like me, I'm, a, I'm what's called a functional introvert. I, I can function out there, but I go hide really quickly. Those of you that are hiding right now, you will never be real until you actually build relationships. Here's the second thing. We're too busy. Anybody know what FOMO is? Fear of missing out. Oh, we have fear of missing out, don't we? And what starts to happen in our fear of missing out is we start to get involved in everything. We want our kids out involved in every sport, and we want to be involved in every activity, and we want to go on every vacation, and we want to do all these different things. And after a while, we are so spread out that any longer we don't have time for deep, meaningful relationships. And again, let me just confess in front of all of you, this is me. There's this weird thought that if my kids don't get involved in every single sport, do you understand? They're going to be an insufficient human being. Did you know Abraham Lincoln really didn't play sports? He turned out okay. He chopped wood, dang it. That's what you should do with your kids. Which brings us to the second one. We need to create new stories. We need to center our relationships around deep, meaningful relationship with Jesus. And when we don't do that, what we start to do is we find, start to find our identity in our jobs. We start to find our identity in our families. 
We start to find our identity in our activities. We start to find even for our kids their identity inside of their various activities and their sports. Now, none of those things are wrong in and of themselves, but you know this, that the more you go down this particular route, the more and more you're gonna become the person you don't wanna be because your mind will be functioning around work. It'll be functioning around activity. It'll be functioning around even my family. It'll be functioning around my family's activities. And at the end of the day, what's gonna happen is, is I'm gonna start to become the fraud or even, and I would just say this to warn you about all of you that have your children doing a million different things. They will become the kid that you never intended to raise because you will start to raise good athletes, good academics, good thespians, but you will not raise followers of Jesus. Now, I don't want to be legalistic here. I think it's just at the end of the day, we have to decide what's most important. Remember the rich young ruler in Matthew 19? He came to Jesus and he said, what must I do to be saved? Jesus said, you know, uh, started laying out the commands and he said, all of these I've done since my youth. And all of a sudden Jesus went to this core place in who he was. He said, then sell everything you have, give it to the poor and follow me. And what happened to the young man? He walked away sad. The surrender that I think we have to do is, again, it's not that those things are bad. Even money. I feel like sometimes churches talk about money like it's evil. Money is not evil. What's evil? The love of money. See, what this starts to do is the more that I get into relationships, I start to find out what my idols actually are, those things that I love that aren't Jesus. The more I begin to kind of move things away so that I can have deep, meaningful relationships, people start asking me questions about who I am and how it's really going. And they see how I treat my wife. They see how they treat my, how I treat my kids. They see how I live my life. They, they see my patterns. And if you've got kids like I do, they tattletale on me all the time about my deficiencies and weaknesses and idols. But listen to me. This is the surrender we need to do. I really think that the one thing hampering the church from being the church, the one thing hampering us from being the people that God intends us to be, the one thing that's keeping us from being real is that we are way too busy. And I say that as a fellow one in front of all of you that is sinning with that particular reality. We've got to slow down. We've got to begin to make Jesus the center of our lives again. Which brings us to the last one. Live the promise of the prophets of God. One of my goals in going through the book of 2 Corinthians is start to get you as excited as I possibly can about who all you are in Christ. My prayer is that if we get to the end of this and all of us start to realize that we are not a Vega or we are not a Pinto or we are not a Gremlin, but in fact that the Church of Jesus Christ is a Hennessy Venom GT and we learn that it has 39 gears to it that we can shift, then we'll have caught the point of Paul in 2 Corinthians. Remember I said this to you a few weeks ago, do you know who you are? This is why we have to be in the word. It's why we need to know who Jesus Christ is. It's why we need to know not who I say I am or what others say I am or what I think others are. We need to allow God to begin to do this. Now, some of you are gonna leave here and you're gonna be like, that's right. Woo, woo, let's go. Let's go get this, come on, huh? Hoorah, here, right? That's the way it's gonna be. 
Before you go do that, though, can I just suggest something from John 15? Don't go do first. Go abide. Just go be. Just go enjoy Jesus. Go learn what it means to obey his commands. Go find other people that love Jesus and put yourself with them and just start to love them and allow them to love you. To abide means actually to remain, to rest. Isn't it weird to think that we're as Christians, if we're really gonna get after this, we have to learn to rest. Don't you wish that's how your job worked? Man, if you're gonna really be great at our office, one of the things you've gotta learn is you've gotta really learn how to rest. I'll take this job. (laughs) Your job as a follower of Jesus is to abide. Jesus says, abide in me and you'll produce much fruit. Abide in me, obey my commandments. Abide in me, love people. As you go here today, if you're not in relationship, make this week your goal, not only in your relationship with Jesus, but in relationship with others. If you need help in the relationship thing, go to that table back there and we'll help you to find relationships. Because here's what's weird and here's where I'm gonna end today. If all we do is come in this room once a week, we will never be real. Preaching is wonderful. Singing together is wonderful but it is no substitute for relationships. If you need help, there's a table. If you need help from me, I've just told you I'm an introverted loser that is a FOMO. Um, Yeah, all those other things, but I'll do the best I can. I'm sorting through this too. But listen to me, church. Don't forget who you are. You are sons and daughters of the King Most High, designed to live like a performance sports car. You're designed to be real. And all God's people said, all right, Jesus, thank you for today. Help us to be the real people you've designed us to be in your precious name, amen.